Welcome back to another episode of the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast with your host, me, Ash Balls. This is a podcast where every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I read a short story or poetry written by an author from long ago or a modern-day author. The author that is read from here is then showcased for the week on the Facebook page by the same name, so you're going to want to follow it. If you're an author and would like your short stories or poetry showcased on the podcast, as well as Facebook page for the week, you can get a hold of us in the link in the bio. And that's where you can also find the link to the Facebook page as well. But thank you to everyone who listens from iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you might be listening from. I truly do appreciate it. So let's get started, shall we? This week's author I absolutely adore and love and have since I was a kid, as do many other people. And my friend's father, who's an artist, actually did a rendition for um, which he gave me as a gift, actually, called Sherlock's Pipe. So, of course, this week's author is none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I'm going to be reading a short story by him for you guys, and it's called The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. So let's get started, shall we? The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle by Arthur Conan Doyle. I had called upon my friend Sherlock Holmes upon the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. He was lounging upon the sofa in a purple dressing gown, a pipe rack within his reach upon the right, and a pile of crumpled morning papers evidently newly studied near at hand. Beside the couch was a wooden chair, and on the angle of the back hung a very seedy and disreputable hard-felt hat, much the worse for wear and cracked in several places. A lens and a forceps lying upon the seat of the chair suggested that the hat had been suspended in this manner for the purpose of examination. You are engaged, said I. Perhaps I interrupt you. Not at all. I'm glad to have a friend with whom I can discuss my results. The matter is a perfectly trivial one. He jerked his thumb in the direction of the old hat. But there are points in connection with it which are not entirely devoid of interest and even of instruction. I seated myself in his armchair and warmed my hands before his crackling fire, for a sharp frost had set in and the windows were thick with ice crystals. I suppose, I remarked, that homely as it looks, this thing has some deadly story linked onto it. That is, the clue which will guide you in the solution of some mystery and the punishment of some crime. No, no, no crime, said Sherlock Holmes, laughing. Only one of those whimsical little incidents which will happen when you have four million human beings all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. Amid the action and reaction of so dense a swarm of humanity, every possible combination of events may be expected to take place, and many a little problem will be presented, which may be striking and bizarre without being criminal. We have already had an experience of such. So much so, I remarked, that of the last six cases which I have added to my notes, three have been entirely free of any legal crime. Precisely, you allude to my attempt to recover the Irene Adler papers, to the singular case of Miss Mary Sutherland, and to the adventure of the man with the twisted lip. 
Well, I have no doubt that this small matter will fall into the same innocent category. You know Peterson, the commissioner? Yes. It is to him that this trophy belongs. It is his hat. No, no, he found it. Its owner is unknown. I beg that you will look upon it as a battered billycock, but as an intellectual problem. At first, as to how it came here, it arrived upon Christmas morning in company with a good fat goose, which is, I have no doubt, roasting at this moment in front of Peterson's fire. The facts are these. About four o'clock on Christmas morning, Peterson, who, as you know, is a very honest fellow, was returning from some small jollification and was making his way homeward down to Tottenham Court Road. In front of him, he saw in the gaslight a tallish man walking with a slight stagger and carrying a white goose slung over his shoulder. As he reached the corner of Googe Street, a row broke out between his stranger and a little knot of roofs. One of the latter knocked off the man's hat on which he raised his stick to defend himself and swinging it over his head, smashed the shop window behind him. Peterson had rushed forward to protect the stranger from his assailants, but the man, shocked at having broken the window and seeing an official-looking person in uniform rushing towards him, dropped his goose, took to his heels, and vanished amid the labyrinth of small streets which lie at the back of Tottenham Court Road. The roughs had also fled at the appearance of Peterson so that he was left in possession of the field of battle and also of the spoils of victory in the shape of this battered hat and the most unimpeachable Christmas goose, which surely he restored to their owner. My dear fellow, there lies the problem. It is true that for Mrs. Henry Baker was printed upon a small card which was tied to the bird's left leg. It is also true that the initials HB are legible upon the lining of this hat. But as there are some thousands of bakers and some hundreds of Henry Bakers in the city of ours, it is not easy to restore lost property to any of them. What then did Peterson do? He brought round both hat and goose to me on Christmas morning, knowing that even the smallest problem are of interest to me. The goose we retained until the morning when there were signs that in spite of the slight frost, it would be well that it should be eaten without unnecessary delay. Its finder has carried it off, therefore, to fulfill the ultimate destiny of a goose, which I continue to retain the hat of the unknown gentleman who lost his Christmas dinner. Did he not advertise? No. Then what clue could you have as to his identity? Only as much as we can deduce. From his hat? Precisely. But you are joking. What can you gather from this old battered hat? Here is my lens. You know my methods. What can you gather yourself as to the individuality of the man who has worn this article? I took the tattered object in my hand and turned it over rather ruefully. It was a very ordinary black hat of the usual round shape, hard and much the worse for wear. The lining had been of red silk, but was a good deal discolored. There were no markers on the name, but as Holmes had remarked, the initials HB were scrawled upon the one side. It was pierced in the brim for a hat secure, but the elastic was missing. For the rest of it was cracked exceedingly dusty and spotted in several places, although there seemed to have been some attempt to hide the discolored patches by smearing them with ink. I can see nothing, said I, handing it back to my friend. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then pray tell me what is it you can infer from this hat? He picked it up and gazed at it in the peculiar introspective fashion which was characteristic of him. 
It is perhaps less suggestive than it might have been here marked, and yet there are a few inferences of which are very distinct and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. He has foresight, but has less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink upon work with him. This may account for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes... He has, however, retained some degree of self-respect, he continued, disregarding my remonstrance. He is a man who leads a sedentary life, goes out little, and is of training entirely. He is middle-aged, his grizzled hair, which he has cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. These are the more patent facts which are to be deduced from this hat. Also, by the way, that it is extremely improbable that he has gas laid on in his house. You are certainly joking, Holmes. Not in the least. It is possible that even now, when I give you these results, you are unable to see how they are attained. I have no doubt that I am very stupid, but I must confess that I am unable to follow you. For example, how did you deduce that this man was intellectual? For answer, Holmes clapped the hat upon his head. It came right over the forehead and settled upon the bridge of his nose. It is a question of cubic capacity, said he. A man with so large a brain must have something in it. The decline of his fortunes, then? The hat is three years old. These flat brims curled at the age came in then. It is a hat of the very best quality. Look at the band of ribbed silk and excellent lining. If this man could afford to buy such an expensive hat three years ago and has had no hat since, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. Well, that is clearly enough, certainly. But what about the foresight and the moral retrogression? Sherlock Holmes laughed. Here is the foresight, said he, putting his finger upon the little disc and loop of the hat secure. They are never sold upon hats. If this man ordered one, it is a sign of a certain amount of foresight since he went out of his way to take his precaution against the wind. But since we see that he's obviously broken the elastic and is not troubled to replace it, it is obvious that he has less foresight now than formerly, which is a distinct proof of weakening nature. On the other hand, he has endeavored to conceal some of these stains upon the felt by daubing them with ink, which is a sign that he has not entirely lost his self-respect. Your reasoning is certainly plausible. There further points that he is middle-aged and his hair is grizzled, that has been securely cut that he uses lime cream are all to be gathered from a close examination to the lower part of the lining. The lens disclosures a larger number of hair ends clean cut by the scissors of the barber. They all appear to be adhesive and there is a distinct odor of lime cream. The dust you will observe is not the gritty gray dust of the street, but the fluffy brown dust of the house, showing it has been hung up indoors most of the time. Well, the marks of moisture upon the inside are proof and positive that the wearer perspired more freely and could therefore hardly be in the best of training. But his wife, you said that she had ceased to love him. That hat has not been brushed for weeks. When I see you, dear Watson, with a week's accumulation of dust upon your hat when your wife allows you to go out in such a state, I shall fear that you also have been unfortunate enough to lose your wife's affection. But he might be a bachelor. Nay, he was bringing home the goose as a peace offerings to his wife. Remember the cart upon the bird's leg? 
you have been answered everything. But how on earth did you deduce that the gas was not laid on in his house? One tallow stain or even two might come by chance, but when I see no less than five, I think that there can be little doubt that the individual must be brought into frequent contact with burning tallow. Walks upstairs, probably with his hat in one hand and a guttering candle in the other. Anyhow, he never got tallow stains from a gas jet. Are you satisfied? Well, it is very ingenious, said I, laughing. But since, as you said just now, there has been no crime committed and no harm done save the loss of a goose, all this seems to be rather waste of energy. Sherlock Holmes had opened his mouth in reply when the door flew open and Peterson, the commissioner, walked into the apartment with flushed cheeks in the, fa- in the face of a man who was dazed with astonishment. The goose, Mr. Holmes, the goose, sir, he gasped. Eh, what of it then? Has it returned to life and flapped off through the kitchen window? Holmes twisted himself round upon the sofa to get a fair view of the man's excited face. See here, sir, see what my wife found in its crop? He held out its hand and displayed upon the center of the palm a brilliantly scintillating blue stone, rather smaller than a bean in size, but of such purity and radiance that it trinkled with an electric point in the dark hollow of his hand. Sherlock Holmes sat up with a whistle. By Jove, Peterson, said he, this is a Trevor Trove indeed. I suppose you know what you have got? A diamond, sir, a precious stone. It's cut into glass as though it were putty. It's more than a precious stone. It's the precious stone. Not the Countess of Morcar's blue carbuncle, I ejaculated. Precisely so. I ought to know its size and shape, seeing that I have read the advertisement about it in the Times every day lately. It is absolutely unique, and it can value can only be conjectured, but the reward offered a thousand pounds. It is certainly not within a twentieth part of the market price. A thousand pounds? Great Lord of mercy, the commissioner plumped down into the chair and stared from one to the other of us. That is a reward, and I have reason to know that there are sentimental considerations in the background which would deduce the countess to part with half her fortune if she could recover the gem. It was lost, if I remember all right, at the Hotel Cosmopolitan, I remarked. Precisely so. On December 22nd, just five days ago, John Horner, a plumber, was accused of having abstracted it from the lady's jewelry case. The evidence against him was so strong that the case had been referred to the Assizes. I have some account of the matter here, I believe. He rummaged amid his newspapers, glancing over the dates until at last he smoothed one out, doubled it over, and read the following paragraph. The Hotel Cosmopolitan Jewel Robbery, John Horner, 26 plumber, brought up upon the charge of having upon the 22nd Institute grabbed, abstracted from the jewel case of the Countess of Morcar, the valuable gem known as the Blue Carbuncle. James Ryder, upper attendant at the hotel, gave his evidence to the effect that he had shown Horner up to the dressing room of the Countess of Morcar upon the day of the robbery in order that he might solder the second bar of the grate which was loose. He had remained with Horner some little time, but had finally been called away. On returning, he found that Horner had disappeared, that the bureau had been forced open, and that the small Morocco casket in which, as it afterwards transpired, the Countess was accustomed to keep her jewel, was lying empty on the dressing table. Ryder instantly gave the alarm, and Horner was arrested the same evening, but the stone could not be found either upon his person or in his rooms. Catherine Cusack, made to the Countess, deposed to having heard Ryder's cry of dismay on discovering the robbery, and to having rushed into the room where she found matters as described by the last witness. 
Inspector Bradstreet B Division gave evidence as to the arrest of Horner, who struggled frantically and protested his innocence in the strongest terms. Evidence of his previous conviction for robbery having been given against the prisoner, the magistrate refused to deal summarily with the office, but referred it to the Assizes. Horner, who had shown signs of intense emotion during the proceedings, fainted away at the conclusion and was carried out of court. Huh. So much for the police court, said Holmes thoughtfully, tossing aside the paper. The question for us now is to solve the sequence of events leading from a rifled jewel case at one end to the crop of a goose in Tottenham Court Road at the other. You see, Watson, our little deductions have suddenly assumed a much more important and less innocent aspect. Here is the stone. The stone came from the goose, and the goose came from Mr. Henry Baker, the gentleman with the bad hat and all the other characteristics with which I have bored you. So now we must set ourselves very seriously to finding this gentleman and ascertaining what part he played in this little mystery. To do this, we must try the simplest means first, and these lie indebtedly in an advertisement in all the evening papers. If this fails, I shall have recourse to other methods. What will you say? Give me a pencil and that slip of paper. Now then, found at the corner of Agooge Street, a goose in a black felt hat. Mr. Henry Baker can have the same by applying at 6.30 this evening at 221B Baker Street. That is clear and concise. Very, but will he see it? Well, he is sure to keep an eye on the papers since to a poor man the loss was a heavy one. He was clearly so scared by his mischance in breaking the window and by the approach of Peterson and he thought of nothing but flight, but since then he must have bitterly regretted the impulse which caused him to drop his bird. Then again, the introduction of his name will cause him to see it, for everyone who knows him will direct his attention to it. Here you are, Peterson. Run down to the advertising agency and have this put in this evening's paper. In which, sir? Oh, the Globe, Star, Pall Mall, St. James Evening News, Standard Echo, and any others that occur to you. Very well, sir. In the stone? I guess I shall keep the stone, thank you. And I say, Peterson, just buy a goose on your way back and leave it here with me. For you must have one to give to this gentleman in place of the one which your family is now devouring. You are listening to the Nighttime Short Stories podcast, where we read a new short story from long ago to modern day authors every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to check out the Facebook page under the same name. There's a link in the bio for daily information, photos, facts, quotes, and bios on the authors showcased for the week. If you know of anyone that you think would enjoy the podcast as well, please be sure to share it out. And again, thank you for listening. When the commissioner had gone, Holmes took up the stone and held it against the light. It's a bonny thing, said he. Just see how it glints and sparkles. Of course, it is a nucleus and focus of crime. Every good stone is. They are the devil's pet baits. In the larger and older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. This stone is not yet 20 years old. It was found in the banks of the Amoy River, not yet in southern China, and is remarkable in having every characteristic of the carbuncle, save that it is blue in shade instead of ruby red. In spite of its youth, it is already a sinister history. There have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought 
about for the sake of this 40 grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy would be the purveyor of the gallows and the prison? I'll lock it up in my strong box now and drop a line to the countess to say we have it. Do you think that this man Horner is innocent? I cannot tell. Well, then, do you imagine that this other one, Henry Baker, had anything to do with the matter? It is, I think, much more likely that Henry Baker is absolutely innocent man who had no idea that the bird which he was carrying was of considerably more value than if it were made of solid gold. That, however, I shall determine by a very simple test if we have an answer to our advertisement. And you can do nothing until then? Nothing. In that case, I shall continue my professional round. But I shall come back in the evening at the hour you have mentioned, for I would like to see the solution of so tangled a business. Very glad to see you. I dine at seven. There's a woodcock, I believe, by the way, in view of recent occurrences. Perhaps I ought to ask Mrs. Hudson to examine its crop. I had been delayed at a case, and it was a little half past six when I found myself in Baker Street once more. As I approached the house, I saw a tall man in a scotch bonnet and a coat which was buttoned up to his chin, waiting outside in the bright semicircle which was thrown from the fanlight. Just as I arrived, the door was opened, and we were shown up together to Holmes' room. Mr. Henry Baker, I believe, said he, rising from his armchair and greeting his visitor with the easy air of geniality, which he could so readily assume. Pray take this chair by the fire, Mr. Baker. It is a cold night, and observe your circulation is more adaptive for summer than your winter. Ah, Watson, you have just come at the right time. Is that your hat, Mr. Baker? Yes, sir, that is undoubtedly my hat. He was a large man with round shoulders and a massive head and a broad, intelligent face sloping down to a pointed beard of grizzled brown. A touch of red in nose and cheeks and a slight tremor of his extended hand recalled Holmes' surmise as to his habits. His rusty black frock coat was buttoned right up in the front with the collar turned up and his lank wrists protruded from his sleeves without a sign of cuff or short. He spoke in a slow, staccato fashion, choosing his words with care, and gave the impression generally of a man of learning and letters who had ill usage at the hands of fortune. We have retained these things for some days, said Holmes, because we expected to see an advertisement from you giving your address. I'm at a loss to know why you did not advertise. Our visitor gave a rather shamefaced laugh. Shillings have not been so plentiful with me as they once were, he remarked. I had no doubt that the gang of roughs who assaulted me had carried off both my hat and the bird. I did not care to spend more money in a hopeless attempt at recovering them. Very naturally. By the way, about the bird, we were compelled to eat it. To eat it? Our visitor half rose from his chair in excitement. Yes, it would have been of no use to anyone had we not done so. But I presume that this other goose upon the sideboard, which is about the same weight and perfectly fresh, will answer your purpose equally well. Oh, well, certainly, certainly, answered Mr. Baker with a sigh of relief. Of course, we still have the feathers, leg, crop, and so on of your own bird, so if you wish. The man burst into a hearty laugh. They might be useful to me as relics of my adventures, said he, but beyond that I can hardly see what use the disjecta membra of my late acquaintance are going to be to me. No, sir, I think that with your permission I will confine my attentions to the excellent bird which I perceived upon the sideboard. 
Sherlock Holmes glanced sharply across at me with a slight shrug of his shoulders. There's your hat, then, and your bird, said he. By the way, would it bore you to tell me where you got the other from? I am somewhat of a fowl fancier, and I have seldom seen a better grown goose. Certainly, sir, said Baker, who had risen and tucked his newly gained property under his arm. There are a few of us who frequent the Alpha Inn near the museum. We are to be found in the museum itself during the day, you understand. This year, our good host, Windgate by name, instituted a goose club by which, on consideration of a few pence every week, we were to each receive a bird at Christmas. My pence were duly paid, and the rest is familiar to you. I am much indebted to you, sir, for a scotch bonnet is fitted rather to my years, not my gravity. With a comical pomposity of manner, he bowed solemnly to both of us and strode off on his way. So much for Henry Blake, said Holmes, when he had closed the door behind him. It is quite certain that he knows nothing whatsoever about the matter. Are you hungry, Watson? Not particularly. Then I suggest we turn our dinner into supper and follow up this clue while it is still hot. By all means. It is a bitter night, so we drew our ulsters and wrapped cravats about our throats. Outside, the stars were shining coldly in a cloudless sky, and the breath of the passerby's blew out into smoke like so much pistol shots. Our footfalls rang out crisply and loudly as we swung through the doctor's quarters, Wimpole Street, Harley Street, and so through Wigmore Street into Oxford Street. In a quarter of an hour, we were at Bloomsbury at the Alpha Inn, which is a small public house at the corner of one of the streets which runs down to the Holborn. Holmes had pushed open the door of the private bar and ordered two glasses of beer from the ruddy-faced, white-aproned landlord. Your beer should be excellent if it is good as your geese, said he. My geese? The man seemed surprised. Yes, I was speaking only half an hour ago to Henry Baker, who was a member of your goose club. Oh, yes, I see. But you see, sir, them's not our geese. Indeed, who's then? Well, I got the two dozen from a salesman at Covent Garden. Indeed, I know some of them. Which was it? Breckenridge is his name. Ah, I don't know him. Well, here's to your good health, landlord, and prosperity to your house. Good night. Now for Mr. Brickenbridge, he continued, buttoning up his coat, and we came into the frosty air. Remember, Watson, that though we have so homely a thing as a goose at one end of his chain, we have the other, a man who will certainly get seven years penal servitude unless we can establish his innocence. It is possible that our inquiry may confirm his guilt, but in any case, we have a line of investigation which has been missed by the police and which singular chance is placed in our hands. Let us follow it out into the bitter end. Faces to the south then, and quick march. We passed across Holborn, down Endell Street, and so through the zigzags of slums to Covent Garden Market. One of the largest stalls bore the name Breckenridge upon it, and the proprietor of a horsey-looking man with a sharp face and a trim side whiskers was helping a boy to put up the shutters. Good evening. It's a cold night, said Holmes. Salesman nodded and shot a questioning glance at my companion. Sold at a geese, I see, continued Holmes, pointing at the bare slabs of marble. Let you have 500 tomorrow morning. That's no good. Well, there are some on the stall with the gas flare. Ah, but I was recommended to you. Who by? The landlord at the Alpha. Oh, yes, I sent him a couple of dozen. Fine birds they were, too. Now, where did you get them? To my surprise, the question provoked a burst of anger from the salesman. Now then, mister, said he, his head cocked with his arms akimbo. What are you driving at? Let's have it straight now. It is straight enough. I should like to know who sold you the geese. 
who, which you supplied to the Alpha. Well, then I shan't tell you so now. Oh, it is a matter of no importance if I don't know why you should be so warm over a little trifle. Warm? You'd be as warm maybe if you were pestered as I am. When I pay good money for a good article, there should be an end to the business. But it's where are the geese? And who did you sell these geese to? And what will you take for the geese? One would think the only geese in the world to hear the fuss that is made over them. Well, I have no connection with any other people that have been making inquiries, said Holmes carelessly. If you won't tell us the bet is off, that is all. But I'm always ready to back my opinion with a matter of fowls. And I have a fiver on that bird I ate is country bread. Well, then you've lost your fiver for its town bread, snapped the salesman. It's nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe it is. Do you think you know more about fowl than I, who have handled them ever since I was a nipper? I tell you all those birds we went to the Alpha were town-bred. You never persuade me to believe that. Will you bet then? It's merely taking your money, for I know I'm right, but I'll have a sovereign with you just to teach you not to be obstinate. The salesman chuckled grimly. Bring me the books, Bill, said he. The small boy brought round a small thin volume and a great greasy-backed one, laying them out together beneath the hanging lamp. Now then, Mr. Cockshore, said the salesman, I thought that I was out of geese, but before I finish, you'll find that there's one still left in my shop. You see this little book? Well, that's the list of the folk from whom I buy, do you see? Well, they're here on this page of the country folk, and the numbers after their names are where their accounts are in the big ledger. Now then, you see the other page in red ink. Well, that is the list of my town suppliers. Now look at the third name. Just read it out to me. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, 249, Red Holmes. Quite so. Now turn that up in the ledger. Holmes turned the page and indicated, here you are, Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, egg and poultry supplier. Now then, what's the last entry? December 22nd, 24 geese and sevens, 6D. Quite so. There you are. And underneath, sold to Mr. Wingate at the Alpha at 12S. There, what have you to say now? Sherlock Holmes looked deeply chargent. He grew a sovereign from his pocket and threw it upon the slab, turning away with the air of a man with disgust and was too deep for words. A few yards off, he stopped under a lamppost and laughed at the hearty, noiseless fashion, which was peculiar to him. When you see a man with whiskers of that cut and that pinkin protruding out of his pocket, you can always draw him by a bet, said he. I dare say that if I had put $100 down in front of him, that man would have given me such complete information as was drawn from him by the idea that he was doing me on a wager. Watson, we are, I fancy, nearing the end of our quest. And the only point which remains to be determined is whether we should go on to Mrs. Oakshot tonight or whether we should reserve it for tomorrow. It is clear from that what Shirley Fellow said that there are others besides herself who are anxious about the matter I should, he remarks, suddenly cut short by a loud hubbub which broke out from the stall which he had just left. Turning around, we saw a little fat race man running the center circle of yellow light which was thrown by the swinging lamp which Breckenridge Sailman framed at his door of his stall was shaking his fist fairly at the cringing figure. I've had enough of your geese, he shouted. I wish you were all the devil together. If you come pestering me any more with your silly talk, I'll set that dog at you. You bring Mrs. Oakshot here and I'll answer her, but what have you to do with it? Did I buy these geese off you? No, but one of them was mine all the same, whined the little man. Well then, ask Miss Oakshot for it. She told me to ask you. Well, you can ask the king of Proasia for all I care. I have enough of it. Get out of this. 
He rushed fiercely forward, and the inquiry flitted away into the darkness. Ha! This may save us a visit to Brixton Road, whispered Holmes. Come with me, and we will see what it is to be made of this fellow. Striding through the scattered knots of people and lunged forward round the flaring stalls, my companion speedily overtook the little man and touched him upon the shoulder. He sprang around, and I could see the gas light that every visage of color had been driven from his face. Who are you, then? What do you want? He asked in a quavering voice. You will excuse me, said Holmes blandly, but I could not help overhearing the questions which you put to the salesman just now. I think I could be of assistance to you. You? Who are you? How could you know of anything of the matter? My name is Sherlock Holmes. It is my business to know what other people don't know. But you can know nothing of this. Excuse me, but I know everything of it. You are endeavoring to see some geese which were sold by Mrs. Oakshot of Brixton Road to a salesman named Breckenridge. By him in turn of Mrs. Wintergate and the Alpha and by name to his club of which Mr. Henry Baker is a member. Oh, sir, you are the very man who I have longed to meet, cried the little fellow with outstretched hands and quivering fingers. I can hardly explain to you how interested I am in this matter. Sherlock Holmes hailed for a four-wheeler that was passing, in which case we had better discuss it in a cozy room rather than in this wind-swept marketplace, said he. But pray tell me, before we go farther, who is it that I have the pleasure of assisting? The man hesitated for an instant. My name is John Robinson, he answered with a sidelong glance. No, no, the real name, said Holmes sweetly. It is always awkward doing business with an alias. A flush sprang to the white cheeks with the stranger. Well then, said he, my real name is James Ryder. Precisely so. Head attendant at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. Pray step into the cab and I shall soon be able to tell you everything which you wish to know. The little man stood glancing from one of the other of us to half-frightened, half-hopeful eyes as one who is not sure whether he is on the verge of a windfall or of a catastrophe. Then he stepped into the cab, and in half an hour we were back in the sitting room at Baker Street. Nothing had been said during our drive but the high, thin breathing of our new companion and the claspings and unclaspings of his hand spoke in the nervous tensions within him. "'Here we go,' said Holmes cheerily as we filed into the room." The fire looks very seasonable in this weather. You look cold, Mr. Ryder. Pray take the basket chair. I will just put on my slippers before we settle this little matter of yours. Now then, you want to know what became of your goose? Yes, sir. Or rather, I fancy of that goose. It was one bird I imagine in which you were interested, white with a black bar across the tail. Ryder quivered with emotion. Oh, sir, he cried. Can you tell me where it went to? It came here. Here? Yes, and a most remarkable bird it proved. I don't know, I don't wonder that you should take an interest in it. It laid an egg after it was dead. The boniest, brightest little blue egg that I'd ever seen. I have it here in my museum. Our visitor staggered to his feet, clutched the masterpiece in his right hand. Holmes unlocked his strong box and held up the blue carbuncle, which shone out like a star with a cold, brilliant, and many-pointed radiance. Ryder stood glaring at the drawn face, uncertain whether to claim or to disown it. The game's up, Ryder, said Holmes quietly. Hold up, man, or you'll be into the fire. Give him an arm back into his chair, Watson. He's not got blood enough to go in for a felony of imputiny. Give him a dash of brandy. So, now he looks a little more human. What a shrimp it is, to be sure. 
For a moment, he had staggered and nearly fallen, but the brandy brought a tinge of color into his cheeks, and he sat staring with frightened eyes at his accusers. I have almost every link in the hands and all the proof which I could possibly need, so there is little which you need to tell me. Still, that little may as well be cleared up as to make the case complete. As you heard, Ryder of this blue stone of the Countess of Morcars, it was Catherine Cusack who told me of it, said he in a crackling voice. I see her ladyship's waiting maid. Well, the temptation of sudden wealth so easily acquired was too much for you, as it had been for better men before you. You're not very scrupulous in the means you used. It seems to me, Ryder, that there is making of a very pretty villain in you. You knew that this man, Horner, the plumber, had been concerned in such matter before, and that suspicion would rest the more readily upon him. What did you do then? You made some small job in my lady's room, and you and your confederate Cusack, and you managed that he should be the man sent for. Then, when he had left, you rifled the jewel case, raised the alarm, and at this unfortunate man arrested. You then, Ryder threw himself down upon the rug and clutched my companion's knees. For God's sakes, have mercy, he shrieked. Think of my father, of my mother. It would break their hearts. I never went wrong before. I never will again, I swear it. I'll swear on the Bible. I don't bring into court. Oh, for God's sakes, don't. Get back into your chair, said Holmes sternly. It is very well to cringe and crawl now, but you thought little enough of this poor Horner in the dock of the crime with which he knew nothing. I will fly, Mr. Holmes. I will leave the country, sir. That is a charge against him. We'll break down. Huh. We will talk about that. Now let us hear a true account of the next act. How came the stone of the goose, and how come the goose in the open market? Tell us the truth, for their lies your only hope and safety. Ryder passed his tongue over his parched lips. I will tell you just as it happened, sir, said he. When Horner had been arrested, it seemed to me that it would be best for me to get away with the stone at once, for I did not know at what moment the police might take into their heads to search me in my rooms. There is no place about the hotel where it would be safe. I went out as if on some commission, and I made for my sister's house. She had a married man named Oakshot who lived in Brixton Road, where she fattened fowls for the market. All the way there, every man I met seemed to me to be a policeman or detective, and for all that it was a cold night, the sweat was pouring down my face before I came to Brixton Road. My sister asked me what was the matter and why I was so pale, but I told her that I'd been upset by the jewel robbery at the hotel, that it weren't for the backyard and smoked pipe and wondered what it would be best to do. I had a friend once called Maudsley who went into the bat and has been just serving his time in Pentonville. One day he met me and fell into talk about the way of thieves and how they should get rid of what they stole. I knew that he would be true to me for I knew that one, two things about him. So I made up my mind to go right on to Kilburn where he lived and take him into my confidence. You would show me how to turn the stone into money, but how to get him to safety. I thought of the agonies I had gone through in the coming hotel. I might at any moment be seized and searched, and there would be the stone in my waistcoat pocket. I was leaning against the wall at the time and looking at the geese, which were waddling the ground at my feet, and I suddenly had an idea that came upon my head, which showed me how I could be the best detective that ever lived." My sister had told me some weeks before that I might have a pick of her geese for Christmas present, and I knew that she was always as good as her word. I would take my goose now, and I would carry my stone to Kilburn. There is a little shed in the yard. Behind this, I drove one of the birds, a fine big one, white with a barred tail. I carried it, and prying its bill open, I thrust the stone down its throat as far as my fingers could reach. 
The bird gave a gulp, and I felt the stone pass along the gullet and down into the crop. But the creature flapped and struggled, and came out. now came my sister to know what was the matter. I turned to speak to her. The brute broke loose and fluttered all among the others. Whatever were you doing with that bird, Jen? said she. Well, said I, you said you'd give me one for Christmas, and I was feeling which was the fattest. Oh, said she, we set aside yours for you. Jem's bird, we call it. It's the big white one over yonder. There's 26 of them, which makes one for you, one for us, and two dozen for the market. Thank you, Maggie, said I, but if it's all the same to you, I'd rather have the one that I was handling just now. The other one is a good three pounds heavier, said she, and we fattened it expressly for you. Never mind, I'll have the other, and I'll take it now, said I. Oh, just as you like, said she, a little huffed. Which is it you want, then? The white one with the barred tail right in the middle of the flock. Oh, well, very well. Kill it and take it with you. Well, I did what she said, Mr. Holmes, and I carried the bird all the way to Kilburn. I told my pal what I had done. He said that the man... It was easy to tell a thing like that to do. He laughed and he choked and we got a knife and opened the goose. My heart turned to water for there's no sign of the stone and I knew that some terrible mistake had occurred. I left the bird, rushed back to my sister's and hurried into the yard, but there's no bird to be seen. Where are they all, Maggie? I cried. Gone to the dealers, Jim. Which dealers? Breckenridge at Covent Garden. But was there another with a barred tail? I asked, the same one I chose. Yes, Jim. There were two barred tail ones and I could never tell them apart. Well, then, of course, I saw it all, and I ran off as hard as my feet could carry me to this man Breckenridge, but he had sold the lot at once, and not one word would he tell me as to where they had gone. You heard him yourselves tonight. Well, he was always answered me like that. My sister thinks I am going mad. Sometimes I think that I am myself. Now, now I myself am a branded thief without ever having touched the wealth for which I sold my character. God help me. God help me. He burst into convulsive sobbing and his face buried in his hands. There was a long silence broken only by his heavy breathing and by the measured tapping of Sherlock Holmes's fingertips upon the edge of the table. Then my friend rose and threw open the door. Get out, said he. What, sir? Oh, heavens, bless you. No more words. Get out. No more words were needed. There was a rush of clatter upon the stairs and the bang of a door and the crisp rattle of running footfalls from the street. After all, Watson, said Holmes, reaching up his hand for his clay pipe, I'm not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. If Horner were in danger, it would be another thing. But this fellow will not appear against him, and in this case must collapse. I suppose that I am commuting a felony, but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. This fellow will not go wrong again, and he is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now, and you make him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is a season of forgiveness. Chance has put in on our way a most singular and whimsical problem, and it is a solution, is its own reward. If you will have the goodness to touch the bell, doctor, we will begin another investigation, in which also a bird will be the chief feature. The end. Until next time. You have been listening to the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and come back every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new author of the week. Thank you for listening. Until next time.